0: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the second of our weekly podcast for practice managers. This is a recording of the webinar run on Wednesday, April
1: the 8th. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I hope you're keeping well and keeping safe. Um, It doesn't really need me to say that um, these are unprecedented times, and it almost seems a bit surreal, particularly if you're working remotely, that the... Challenges that are out there, and um, you know, it is not an underestimate to say this is a national emergency, the like of which uh, none of us have seen in our lifetime. And probably you need to go back to 1918 when the Spanish flu was killing millions of people to be anything like what um, is going on at the moment. So, first and foremost, I'd just like to say a a really big thank you to all of you for all you're doing at times of. You know, real challenge like this, Um, people, the vast majority of people, step up to the mark, uh, a few disappear into the background. But the response from general practice um, in Wessex has been absolutely amazing. You know, the transformation that's occurred in practices in four weeks um, would have taken years to achieve. And even then, we probably wouldn't have achieved it. You know, moving to total triage, to video consultations, to working collaboratively with many uh, of the clinical directors stepping up to the mark and being system leaders. But actually, none of that would happen without all of your support and all of what you do in the practice. And I think um, I'm not just here to flatter you, but all too often, practice manager role is forgotten. and the GPs just can't get on and do their job without all the stuff you do for them. And recognize at a time when you know we're trying to create hot and cold sites and all the challenges that come with that and the uncertainty, the fact that practices have just rolled up their sleeves and got on with the work um, is a real credit to you, your practice, and all your colleagues. Um, we are living in uncertain times, and I have to say I'm on a number of national discussion groups And I feel really humbled that I work with you guys and the calls I have in the system and listen to what's going on in all parts of the counties we cover is um, just amazing. And in some parts, the resistance to doing anything different is quite significant. And when I hear people, I was on a call in one of the counties yesterday and just heard all of the things that are happening. And I just feel some people in other parts of the country should listen to what's going on to see actually what's truly amazing about general practice. So that's enough about the praise and the, but you can all pat yourself on the back, you're doing a great job. Um, And so are your colleagues. But we are in a a really strange time and um, somebody described it to me as if it's a tsunami and the um, tide has gone out and it's really quiet um, but it's beginning to come in, and that there's that massive great wave about to hit us. So the, um, what most practices were describing around the country was that we were seeing um, all the normal general practice activity was disappearing. Uh, people weren't coming. There weren't requests for home visits, and you know it was really quiet. And in some places, the GPs were sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Um, after a week to 10 days of that, it's beginning to come back that some of the routine, urgent general practice is beginning to come back to practices, and we're beginning to see a rise in the number of people with COVID. What I think, if you look at that, it's it is interesting going on the system calls. In the Bournemouth hospitals last weekend, nobody presented with a heart attack or a stroke. And that has never happened before. So one of the concerns is that patients are having their normal illnesses out there, but they're even more scared of what's happening in hospitals than perhaps we are, and aren't presenting. So that that is a concern. Um, looking, sort of picking some stuff out from the all the national stuff that's going on. As you will be aware, we were quite concerned about the four-day bank holiday. And the predicted peak that was going to occur outside London falling at the middle or end of the bank holiday. There is some evidence that the flattening out of the curve means that the peak may not be at the bank holiday, may be towards the beginning of May. And we may see a sustained number of COVID patients rather than it will peak to a crescendo and cause um, you know, problems more than just, you know, sadly people dying. So, again, you've got to look at the trends. You can't just look at one days, but it looks as if the curve may be flattening out. The You know, I don't need to repeat what they say on the TV if any of you watch the news repeatedly. I'm sure some people want to turn it off because they're fed up of hearing about it. But the social distancing does seem to be having an impact. It still is disappointing when you see people collecting in big groups and ignoring it. But for the majority of the population, it does seem to have an impact. It also seems that if you look at some of the hot areas, um, they are more in obviously in London, Birmingham, Manchester um, and in Bristol. For us, Portsmouth is getting busier, but the others are managing reasonably well with not too many patients in ITU. We are getting COVID deaths in hospital, but the ITUs are not at full capacity. And actually, most of the hospitals, they've got a significant number of empty beds. Um, The plans going forward, so you may have heard of the stepping up the beds and the Nightingale hospitals, and there's plans to have the major ones which have been announced in Glasgow, Harrogate, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, London. Uh, There are plans potentially to have Nightingale hospitals in our part of the world, but at the moment they are paused while we see what happens with the trend. Because at the moment, we've got enough ITU beds, we've got enough critical care beds, and we've got enough beds within the hospital. If things start getting significantly worse, then they're continually ramping up their capability and capacity. But at the moment, cross fingers, things are okay. I have been asked about when the end of the lockdown comes. Um, you may have heard the um, um, news presentation last night where Dominic Raab and Chris Whitty were asked repeatedly and didn't answer it. I have no more knowledge than you have. All I would say is I think anybody should be fearful about ending it too quickly and then getting another um, peak and surge. So I can't see um, like the American president believes it'll all be over by Easter, but I I would suspect that they will just keep watching the trends and make a decision at some point in time. But it doesn't strike me that it's going to be three weeks and then there'll be a free for all. The bank holiday. um, There's been much discussion with NHS England. So as you know, the regulations have changed so that Good Friday and Easter Monday are no longer a bank holiday for the NHS. The two main bank holidays are also potentially at risk, but no decision has been made on those at the moment. They're asking practices to provide a normal service on the two bank holidays. One interesting question is, what's a normal service now? Because if I look at any of your practices, I doubt you're offering a normal service. Um, You've moved and flexed. You've created hot and cold sites. I mean, all I would say is, Uh, You're required to offer a service. Um, The LNC's view is we do not want the out of hours to be stood down. We want that to be there over the whole weekend, and we would recommend practices collaborate together in PCNs to offer a service as defined by you, determining the needs that you've got. The deal with NHS England hasn't been well. It's sort of been shared but not agreed and published yet, but. I mean, all I can tell you is my understanding is that the agreement nationally will be that they'll fund reasonable costs. And what they mean by reasonable costs is they will, any staff you employ on that day, they will pay the normal rate of pay, not an enhanced bank holiday rate of pay. They'll also pay for GP partners and locums. Interestingly, in the stuff I've saw, they didn't talk about salary doctors, but I think they must mean for any doctors working they will pay £200 a session or £400 a day. So that's for the Friday and uh, Monday. Locally, some of our CCGs have also looked to have an enhanced presence and are commissioning separately for particularly the hot sites to be available over the weekend. But that's on a local basis, not um, something that is necessarily expected. Again, we would be sympathetic to that request because, you know, this is a national emergency. There are lots of people dying out there. We need to do what we can to help the system. The balance to that is you need to look after yourselves and look after your staff. So we're not expecting everybody to work seven days a week for the next three or four months. People need to have time off. Need People need to have downtime. If we go, this is a, a marathon. It is not a sprint. So, you know, absolutely, we need to look after each other and look after... Um, our staff. Um, As we go forward there are another um, number of challenges. Um, I probably won't spend too long talking about PPE but just to say um, our understanding is that there's been a lot of PPE delivered locally um, and each CCG is working something differently but Some have got central stocks and are then distributing them. So, you know, try the normal routes to get your PPE. If you are having real problems, go to your CCG and, if necessary, come to us. Every time people have come to us, we've gone to the CCG and we've resolved the problem. We particularly think there's enough gloves, um, aprons and face masks, and you'll know the recent change in advice that people can wear eye protectors, masks for a session and change gloves and um, their aprons between time, between patients. Um, Our request to you is, our concern is that more people may come to harm for not using PPE in the right way, rather than many of the concerns about have we got the most appropriate PPE. So donning on and donning off, um, people need to do properly and take all the precautions. So I would just check with all your clinicians, A, that they are aware of what they should do, um, that they've been trained to do it, and if not, watch, there's plenty of videos and we'll share some more information. But using the PPE appropriately is as important, if not more important than the discussion about do we all need to wear long sleeve gowns or not, and what's the the benefit from it. Our view as an LMC is we want everybody to have the best protection they possibly can and use it appropriately, and we will follow national advice. I know there is some concern about what WHO say and what Public Health England say. We aren't putting ourselves in the position of being the experts um, to agree or disagree with um, either party. Um, All I would say is use approved PPE stuff, particularly for the gloves, Um, and the face masks. Um, One question which you might put on the chat is we've been having some discussions about having face shields. I mean, our view is that every patient that is seen in the surgery or at home is potentially COVID positive. So it's up to your clinicians, but the general advice um, from most LMC's would be to wear PPE for all face-to-face contacts. We have been talking to Dorset CCG and a provider in pool who who is manufacturing face shields. Um, And if you could put on the chat whether you've got adequate eye protection or you need it, because we are having some discussion about whether we might bulk buy some of these and then get them distributed. So um, I won't say any more about PPE, but if there are questions come, happy to answer that. The the final bit probably is in, in many of the areas there are, empty hotels and other beds which are being used. So not only are we looking at what the hospital can do, but this battle is going to be won in the community, dare I say, not in hospitals. Um, you know, all the fantastic stuff on the news about the amazing stuff they can do in ITU is really important. But there will be patients, if the projection is right, who won't benefit from hospital-based care or come out of hospital um, and are going to need to be managed in the community. So how we work with the community nurses, how we work um, across our patch, and also how we make use of those beds. So we're having some discussions about, for example, a hotel near us has got 50 beds, which will be step-down beds, who is going to staff them and what's the deal for general practice? So those things are all sort of actively being discussed at the moment. Um, as most of you who know me well I could probably go on for the rest of the hour but um, before I get cut off I'll probably shut up then and hand back to Louise and um, do any questions.
0: Okay thank you Nigel so I'll just go through as they're coming up Um, so one of the ones is what should practices do for patients who are reliant on carers? Patient gets coronavirus um, and if the carer isn't able to then um, go and look after that patient? Should the practice sort out more PPE for different carers or different carers or should the practice be involved at all?
1: So you're, you're all very pragmatic that should be pushed back to the care agency whose responsibility it is and then they should go through the local authority. So the PPE you know the highest level has always been in ITU and then in critical care then in the hospitals. Um, Sadly, we're sort of further down the food chain often, Um, but the general practice stuff has been raised. I personally wouldn't be giving your PP out to all and sundry. The care agencies are being delivered, but they should go back to the local authority who are also part of each of our area has a LHR something committee. So a sort of Cobra style committee, which is dealing with all these things. So No, don't give. Don't be giving. Pragmatically, if somebody comes and says, look, we're going to see somebody with COVID and we've got no things at all, who wouldn't be compassionate and humane and give them a couple of things. But don't don't share out your um, PPE stuff too widely would be my view.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Going on to more sort of HRE areas now um, and the bank holiday, advertising this, is Facebook on the website okay? Should the CCGs be advertising what practices are doing over the bank holiday? Who's advertising all that?
1: Um, Well, the NHS has said it's open. uh, You can put something on your Facebook or on your um, website or just stick it on your practice. I think patients will know quite quickly and 111 will know quite quickly. Okay. I think if pac- practices, if patients need to access your services, they'll they'll find a way of doing it.
0: Okay. And what's the NMC view on seven day working, seven day week working, eight to eight? When's that going to happen? Is it going to happen? What do you think?
1: Um. The the situation is unless they impose the um, there is a a section of the an act called Section two two five two a where there is a national disaster and they can um, implement command and control from the Secretary of State. So at the moment, you can't be made to do any of that. The CCG can't demand you do it. Um, There are areas uh, where practices are collaborating in PCNs and are developing an 8-to-8, 7-day-a-week service. At the moment, our view is we should be booster. We should be putting more resources into out of hours and making sure the CECAS, the um, COVID service through one one one, and the clinical COVID service and out of hours manages that. Um, in some areas, then, if the CCG wants to commission additional work, then that's absolutely fine. Some federations are being prepared to do it. I don't. Ne- I don't actually think it's probably going to come. To us immediately, I think many practices will know when they're potentially going to fall over because the tsunami has hit and there are just so many patients. In which case, I think naturally it will be you know all hands to the pumps. And there are lots of GPs out there actually, locums who have had their contracts terminated because it's quiet who are looking for work. There are GP returners like myself who are going to go and work in my practice. Um, because I'm 60, I know I look only about 30, but I am 60. I don't particularly want to go and work in the hot site because I'm told my risk is 123 times greater than a 30 year old. Um, but I'm more than happy to see the cold patients and um, do triage or whatever's needed. So I think there are quite a lot of doctors out there who will be prepared to come back. Interesting, Carol's doing some stuff with me and I'm, doing some, I'm doing, taking a lead role in the BMA of returners. There are a phenomenal amount of frustrated GPs who want to come back, but the process of getting back is difficult. And the national scheme is trying to push them all into the CCAS service because they want that to manage the hotspots around the country. Whereas I think most of the returning GPs would sooner work in their old practice or in their old PCN um, areas. So the expectation is that you will be able to employ those um, and there's various levels of which they can work, and you'll be able to claim reasonable costs. The difficulty we've all got at the moment is those reasonable costs just seem uncertain about how much you can claim and when you can claim. It would be great if there was a greater degree of certainty. The hospitals are in the same position they've been told. Anything that's COVID-related, you know, keep a record of, and you'll be able to get it back. The difference between them and us is if we... Um, take loads of money out of our bottom line we don't know when the money's going to come back mm. so you know I haven't got an absolute answer to that.
0: Okay I mean I think one of the questions is um, they might be happy to come back but actually very few want to do the hot sites they all want to do the cold sites.
1: Yeah and and I think you know you you, you need to risk assess the people and you know most of the returners are probably not suitable to work in the hot sites.
0: Okay. Carol, just one think, particularly for you. Um, people who are invited to returning for work, so the returners that um, Nigel was mentioning, um, fully reimbursed including NI, but the practices seem to have to pay this, not, the, not NHS England. Why isn't NHS England holding the contracts for this?
2: Okay, so it depends on the what, what, what guys they come back in, Louise. Okay. So if they come back like, like um, Nigel is an old fart, then he will get a contract from South Central Ambulance Service because they're holding the contract for the whole of England in terms of the returners. They are also going to be issuing contracts to the increases. These are the retainers, locums, anybody else who wants to do extra sessions, if they are prepared to go and work at at the COVID clinical assessment service. So when I say at, it's still remotely, it's not face to face or on 111. That, as Nigel's just said, that is where they're pushing everybody. If somebody wants to come back and work in their practice, then SCAV cannot issue that contract because they can't, they're not the ones directing the work. So that's where you would need to issue probably a temporary locum contract or an increase if it's a salary GP want to do more, just an increase there. Those are the costs that Nigel has just said you need to keep um a note of them make sure you can justify why you've allowed that person to work for you because of others in self-isolation or whatever and then you can claim from the fund that's how it works
0: okay if i could
1: just add the national contract for the ccas services held by a south central ambulance service Um, it's not a negotiated contract it's one that nhs england have said this is what we're going to use there has been some kickback from some lmcs because the rates of pay are £45 an hour during weekdays and a bit more um, at weekends. I think many of the GPs returning aren't doing it for the money, they're doing it because they want to help out. But that's that's largely what the deal is. Um, when you're looking at working locally, one of the benefits of the national scheme is for particularly for locums, they'd get death in service benefit because it's a contract, because as you may know that if I'm a locum and I work today, but I don't work again till Tuesday, that gap in between if I die in that, I'm not entitled to death in service benefit. Whereas if some of the locums, and obviously they're quite mindful of this with the current um, problems with um, the risks to clinicians um, and other practice staff with COVID, they want to be sure they get death in service benefit. So if they do have a contract with a practice, and they're paying superannuation so for people like me who've taken our pension we don't get death in service benefit because we've already got our pension but for others our view has been that if they've got a contract with a practice over even if it's a zero hour contract over a set period of time would give them the death in service benefit
2: but i also think nigel there's a bit of confusion about that so so at least forgive me if you die at least your wife will get Um, some of your pension. They do get some. It's not like you haven't got debt in service. You've got a pension instead. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Um, So, I won't argue with you, Carol. No, I don't want to
2: frighten anybody. Some people are saying, oh, well, if I'm not getting debt in service, I'm not coming back. But if they're already in receipt of their NHS pension, then they've sort of got an equivalent.
1: Yeah, sort of equivalent is not the same. So, I was being precise, you're being perverse.
2: I think we might move on.
0: Okay, Um, SSP rates are going to be much higher because there's so much sickness in the practice. Is HMRC going to reimburse the practices for this?
1: Who knows?
2: But is that then, Nigel, one of the ones they should keep uh, a record of to say this is, you know, so they can do the comparison. This is our increase and maybe claim from the Covid fund. I I, I would
1: record everything at the moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're moving on to shielding now. Where are the
0: definitive lists?
1: Right. So I'm doing some work on it at the moment, So my understanding is that it is a complete mess. <laughs> um, so there's three phases to this. Phase one was they created the National Shielded List from hospital databases, and um they are very specific areas, like renal transplants, you know, Severe end. So they ran the first list and they then put the flags into the clinical systems and put the lists out. Phase two was they've extracted primary care data and they're doing the same um, exercise with that. And the challenge, having talked to Arden's, who many of you use Arden's templates they've been quite heavily involved with NHS Digital to do it, is it's taken some time to work that out. And I think whether they've run the lists or not is a a, um, point of discussion. And then phase three is for practices to be able to look at the lists and add people they want to who you could then send a letter to or people who say, well, hold on a minute, there's nothing wrong with me. And there is a code you can add to take them off. I think there's a further question then is, what happens to the shielded patients. So my understanding, and I say I'm doing some reading and trying to get my head rounded at the moment, is that there is an NHS response and there is a local authority response. So the shielded list is going to the local authorities who are contacting those patients to see about whether they've got somebody to pick up food or you know have, do they need the voluntary people to help with them. And we're looking at the the medical side so that's my understanding but i'm just trying to produce something at the moment to get my head around it because i think it is i think practice is a bit unclear about what they should do and you've got patients who are coming saying oh can i have a letter because i want i want to get sainsbury's groceries and i can only do it with a shielded letter Mm -hmm. the idea is that the shielded people should be a very specific group who have to self-isolate for 12 weeks because if they didn't there would be a severe risk to their health So somebody who had asthma in 1940 and has had one inhaler since does not go on the shielded list. There is a vulnerable list below the shielded list who are a different different group. And in a way, I have more concern about them because I think some of them will be socially isolated, don't necessarily have families nearby, and may not be accessing some of the services that they may need. But again, I think more stuff will come out about that because it's a question that I think everywhere in the country
0: is asking. Okay, this might be better to you, Carol. You've got a staff member who's not had a shielded letter, but are self isolating because they feel they probably should have had a shielded letter and feel vulnerable health wise and they don't really want to work. Um, do they get SSP from the practice? <laughs>
2: um, oops. I don't um, know. We, we sort of, we have, sorry, I'm going to cheat right, in. Right. We yeah, got go to from the lawyers on this, didn't we,
3: Michelle? We did. And we have in our last webinar, we did produce some frequently asked questions and some of the um, and one of the responses was around the different scenarios that you might get within practice. I think I think that is an option. I think there's other options that they might want to consider, like annual leave, unpaid leave. Can they work from home? That kind of thing. Um, but there is no easy answer to this. Um, we would always suggest run it by your HR expert or company that you've got, but it's worth having a look at the FAQs that we did last week.
2: Okay. So Louise, yes. I'll,
1: I'll give you an opinion because I've got an opinion on everything. So you, you are supposed to risk assess your staff, so somebody comes to me and says look I need to be shielded, the first question is why do you need to be shielded, do you actually fit into any of these groups? What is your risk of being in the surgery, whether that's a cold or hot site? If that risk is deemed to be significant, then you take the appropriate action. If the the risk is um, you can mitigate it, then you need to take the mitigation, whether that's working in isolation in the practice, doing a different task, or potentially um, working on something in a different area. Um, Or they work from home if they can work from home. If they're not on the shielded list and they are choosing not to work, then um, they choose not to work and potentially yeah I'd look at all the things in the FAQs but they are essentially taking unpaid leave because that's what they've decided to do.
0: Okay there's quite a lot more HR stuff coming down but I'll move on to other things we'll come back to that if we can. Um, Moving on to PSA thyroid function test B12, is the idea is that we delay these? um, Is it safe to delay them? What's the advice on that?
1: So there is clinical advice gone out. again, there isn't one easy thing. B12s largely can be delayed, but there are quite a few good pathways. Dare I say there are patients who have B12 every three months because it makes them feel better. And the medical reasons are not that they have severe B12 deficiency. So there is a pathway for that. The PSAs, again, all these clinical things, it's looking at the risk of pulling somebody in and then catching COVID versus can it potentially wait? So if you've got somebody with a relatively low PSA, then probably can be delayed. But for, I mean, what I'd say to your GPs is that there are clinical pathways been agreed through all those, including the, um, if you look at the stuff on the hospital are um, sharing, but also there are some national templates which are going out for those things. Some of the things like PSA, the cancer networks are sharing information. So I think there are quite clear pathways for doing it. But ultimately, it is, you know, looking at the patient: what is the benefit versus what is the
2: risk? Okay. I think we've seen a particularly good B12 flowchart from um, uh, Gloucester. So when we do the FAQs on this, we'll we'll use it because it is it's very clear. It's a good flowchart. Brilliant. Um, Any
0: um, Wessex LNC's inside knowledge as for national testing for COVID testing for primary care?
1: Yeah, so um, COVID testing is here, so it is available, but on very small numbers. So we're expecting it to increase. um, And if they are going to get to 100,000 by the end of the month, they're going to be massively increasing it. We're told, for example, you know, endorse it, it can be done, but there's only a couple of tests for primary care per day. One of the problems is I think some people are massively over-reliant on testing as being the definitive answer. So 30% of people who are tested test negative even though they've got COVID. So when you've got um, – you were more likely to get a positive result at day three of being symptomatic – But you may be shedding the virus beforehand and we're hearing some people who have access testing are doing one negative test and then sending people back to work so there's two bits to this one is having the testing available because i think the number of patients that are being shielded or the number of staff being shielded or uh, sorry self-isolating because a member of the family has got a mild fever or may not have covid but also about allowing people to return to work so there's two bits of it in my mind one is To have the tests available and i think what will be more useful is if they can get a a test to see whether somebody is immune so you can do an igm or an igg test the igg test you've got antibodies the igm suggests you're in an active phase of the illness so you're seeing rising igm which is going out to fight the virus so there's there's some local companies along with national companies working on all those things so our expectation is it will come, but it's not. Um, it's not going to be readily available, you know, tomorrow. One of the challenges is that there is a reagent that they use in the testing, which is in really short supply, and that's probably one of the bits that they're struggling with: is to get enough reagent to make this available everywhere. Um, one question that comes up repeatedly is, well, how come Germany is doing so many? The, the reason for that is Germany's got companies like Roche and others who produced those sort of things before. So they had the biomedical science companies which quickly were able to switch into it and had a capacity which we didn't have.
0: Okay. And so we will be told when we can access testing yeah. for staff, will yeah. we? Okay. Yeah. What about immunity testing? Anything
1: about it? That? No, that's just a bit further down the line. It okay. is being piloted in a couple of the universities now.
0: Okay. Um, will we get the six pounds working from home allowance back? I don't actually know what that is, I'm afraid.
2: Six pounds. Oh, is that back? the one where you're is that the HMRC one? You can you get a, a change to your code in your um you know, your your P A Y E where you say, I have to work at home, I have to provide a desk, I have to provide this. I think it's very unlikely. Um, okay. because it, this is so temporary this this is where you have to work from home to produce reports you can't get into your office etc cetera, etc cetera. um i know we looked into this a few years ago so i'm aware of it but i i would very much doubt if 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 you know people can try but i can't see it personally
0: okay um going back to something you mentioned earlier nigel dorset ccg are putting a lot of pressure on to move to seven days a week eight to eight asap can we just say no
1: Yes, you can say no, but rather than say no, I would talk to your clinical director in your PCN and what the system is trying to do. So I don't think it's a sort of binary decision, yes or no, it's what's the need, how can we do it? There's some really productive discussions going on, but I don't think they're um, trying to, uh, they may be putting, trying to twist people's arm a bit and trying to up the coverage, but it's not a case that they can make it happen. You know, our, it may, we may come to a point where actually our communities need it, um, but it's how that's delivered. But again, I think that's where, you know, there are quite a few GPs. You know, if you look at the less than full time working, which covers at least 70 percent of GPs. I know many GPs who said, well, you know, because this is a national crisis and a, um, a national emergency, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll work more sessions than we've done before. Because a lot of other roles, you know, when people have got portfolio roles, a lot of those roles have now disappeared. You know, appraisers, educators, all those things no longer happening.
0: OK, thank you. Um, Lisa, is it OK if I just draw you in now, Lisa Harding? I think you were just going to say something about pharmacy opening hours over the bank holiday. Uh,
3: just that the PSNC has confirmed that they, they are now required also to open over the bank holiday. So that's Good Friday and Easter Monday. From memory, that's two pm till five pm, unless their existing hours were going to be longer anyway. So I think we put a link to that information on our website. I think it was in the FAQs last week.
0: Lovely. And was there anything on information governance that we wanted a data protection we wanted to talk about, or was that to be? Make- I, I don't
3: think so. I think we're planning to put something together, aren't we? But that will be probably after Easter now.
0: Okay. Um, just one other thing we were talking about tomorrow. I don't know whether Helene wants to come in on this. Um we were talking about nurses and care homes and certifying deaths and well, I can't see where Helene is. Is there anything I'm here? Yeah, is there anything, Helene, you want to say for nursing? Um, it's a bit of a gray area. Traditionally nurses have only been able to certify death if uh, there was a DNR in place and they've been trained to do it. And you know, it's to know what that training is. The RCN um, have brought out some recent guidance on um, those who can certify death um, and we have updated that onto our website because they recognise this is unprecedented circumstances and that um, the task or it really needs to be extended to those beyond GPs.
1: So can I be really pedantic here, only a doctor can certify death, so certification is the process by filling the form in for the um, registrar confirming death or verifying death is what we're talking about here not certification
0: yes just to clarify that's correct yes it's verifying thank you um michelle i think we were going to say about shielding or do you feel we've covered that
3: all right um yeah i think we've covered it i was just trying to in my simple brain put each phase down on on a piece of paper and just pick out the bits around the status, the process, actions needed, um, which I think we we'll are possibly look at. There is a document that's been released um, on the 3rd of April that's an FAQ document. I'm not sure if it's on our website, it might be, that talks through the different phases and what Nigel's gone through. So I'm trying to put that into a bit of a summary um, and hopefully we'll share that. The bit that we don't know are some of the timeframes on all of this. It's the the waiting on information from Arden's and everything. But... Um, hopefully we'll have a clearer picture of the, the, of the process
0: okay that's fantastic and um, i think that's pretty much all the questions there might be a few that we've missed what we'll do is we did what we did last time and then we'll carefully look through all the all the texts and see if there's anything we have missed so just a reminder if you do need ppe and that's the visors the eye visors that nigel was talking about in your practice can you just put that on the chat Function as well, and we will collate that information and see if there's anything we can do that would be useful. So, unless Nigel or the directors got anything else they wanted to ask,
1: yeah, I've got. I've got a question. It's really helpful for us to know what the state of general practice is. You know, are you coping all right? Are you, you know, on the edge, or are you in a um, really bad place? Now, some of the CCGs are collecting that data. So we're just thinking about how we could get a picture across all of our packs. So we don't want you to fill in lots of forms every day. Or So um, just just have a think about it. if anybody's got any bright ideas. Um, also, we've got um, working, Carol and I are working together, and we've got probably about 50 GPs on our database who are keen to do You know, work in practices and increase the amount they do. So, if we know where the real hotspots are, we can then potentially direct some of those people to the right areas. But I know, you know, in a couple of our areas, like North Hampshire, for example, you know, there's a three times a week or something where you're filling in lots of things about available appointments, COVID appointments, you know, staff attendance. We certainly don't want that sort of level, even if it's just red, green, and amber, but. You know, maybe it's at PCN level rather than every single practice doing it. But, you know, I'd just be interested in what you guys think.
0: So the comments on the chat are just that the CCG release spreadsheets that literally kills me to complete. Can you please make it simpler? So I think there's two things there. Please, is there any pressure we could put on to make it simpler for the practice managers to fill in? But also, we don't want anybody replicating that for us, do we?
1: No, I don't want to kill you with anything, if if anything. Because if, if 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 we did something like this... If you give us loads of information it'll take us even longer you know I don't know what people do with the information it's really just a sense check more than anything else but we'll we'll have a think about it
2: and also just- if I, can, if I, can, I can actually see who's put that comment so if you would like to send that to me Wiltshire practice manager I will look into finding out if we can get it reduced okay and
0: the other thing seems to be a timing thing. Different CCGs are asking for the timing of the spreadsheet being returned, but it's often at lunchtime or even one at 10.30, and they haven't got a chance of doing that. So if you can put on any more pressure to the CCGs and make it more practical and realistic, I think that might help.
1: Yeah. I think I think part of the problem part of the problem there is each system is having a sip rep about um, four o'clock to five o'clock. So what they're trying to do is get all the... Um, data in from the hospital's community and general practice by lunchtime so that they can collate it for that meeting so i absolutely get where you're coming from and the level of detail you might be being asked for but you know i I do understand that
0: okay um, so just to round off I just th- thank you very much for um, participating in this thank you Nigel and the directors for joining in we will put this as a recorded podcast on our podcast page if you wanted to listen again re- re-listen to it or and anything we want to clarify or links we will also attach to that and just to remind you we're building up a pastoral page for support for you and your colleagues and that's on our COVID-19 page of our website so do look at that there's a very very good mental health little very short three minute film that's just come out that you might want to share with your staff so thank you very much keep safe and we'll see you next week Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice